sort of begin today, and as I think everyone who's had the opportunity to speak this morning has referenced, I will be speaking about love, uh, largely because this is where our text is, but also we do live in a culture that is obsessed with love, right? Uh, love is talked about frequently. Love finds itself the subject and the, the main focal point of various medias throughout really every type, right? For example, in movies, several movies center on a love story. Or even if that's not the main point, love is a subplot that sort of drives the narrative along. Music is no different. Almost every genre uh, across the, the spectrum of musical genres has a handful, if not several dozen thousands of songs about love. And even our great uh, lineage and, and history of uh, literature in Western civilization, love, like the films, is either a major focal point or has these various subplots that drive these narratives. So love is, is saturated everywhere within our culture. And our culture loves love. In fact, I would have to imagine that as soon as I mentioned love, many of you have had films, books, songs, whatever the case may be, pop into your own mind. And potentially even some quotes from pop culture or even political campaigns have popped into your head. For example, right, the hit song, All You Need Is Love. By the beat, see, look at that. I knew I'd get someone with that one. Or perhaps Alfred Lord Tennyson's famous poem that quotes, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all." Right? Or, again, going with the more political world, make love, not war. Or the most recent one in our own day and age, love is love. Now, love is inescapable. I got some chuckles on that one. All right, here we go. This is going to be fun today. You guys are you guys, you guys had your coffee today. This is going to be fun. <laughs> Love is inescapable. People proclaim it constantly. Yet within these examples of love that I've just mentioned, not all of them are a biblically defined love. The love of God is different. In fact, the Greek word for love in this context is the Greek word agape. Agape in its simplest definition is an unconditional love. And as we examine our text for today, 1 John chapter 2, verses 17 and 14, we will accomplish two main goals. One, we will rightly define this agape love this godly love. And two, we will rightly apply or learn how to apply or remind ourselves how to rightly apply this agape love in our own lives. So with that, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Again, it is 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. John writes this. Beloved, I am writing... You know new commandment, but an old commandment that you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word 
that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the light and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. May God please, or may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So as you can see, I have titled today's message, Love is the Light, is of the Light, excuse me. And we will explore this. But as we get into that, we see something very bizarre right off the bat here in our text. Notice what he says. He says that there is both this old commandment, but yet it's new. Now, theoretically, we could maybe think maybe John is just confused here. Maybe John is trying to be too cute and clever in some sort of theological reality. However, this is not the case. See, what John is doing is John is connecting the reality of this commandment from its earliest preaching to the incarnation of Christ. See, remember, our author of this text of 1 John is the same John who wrote the gospel bearing his name. The apostle John, the one that followed Christ throughout Christ's earthly ministry. John was also of Jewish descent. He certainly knows that love is commanded and has been commanded since the very foundation, since the very beginning of Israel's history. So consider what we see then here in Leviticus, uh, chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus records this ancient truth. Leviticus is a very old document from Israel's beginning. It's a part of their law. So right off the bat, we see this reality that this has been commanded. And it's been with Israel ever since they were this young nation. And that is not the only commandment on love from the book of the law. In fact, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. This too is in the law. And these verses in Deuteronomy are what we call the Shema 
are what the ancient Israelites called the Shema, and even modern-day Israelites, let's be honest, they call it this too. And it's called this because that first word here is the Hebrew word Shema, and so it obviously translates to that word in English. And this passage, this command from Deuteronomy became a very key prayer and ritual practiced within Judaism. Uh, when they recited this, they treated this as a prayer, and they also include, included uh, phylacteries. Now, now these phylacter, phylacteries excuse me, were these small boxes that had leather straps typically that would wrap around them, and they could literally bind, as the picture you can see there on the screen depicts, that where they would wrap around their arms and their heads. Now, they did this to, again, emphasize this law so that they would go about it, so they would have it on the forefront of their mind, literally, right? They would place it there to keep it in the forefront, but also they would attach to their arms and hands to, sim to symbolize the doing of this commandment. And in fact, uh, these little boxes would often either have scripture written on them or more commonly would have little tiny scrolls with this passage uh, included in them. And the reality of this is that there are still Orthodox Jews today who practice this ritual, this prayer daily. And so this is a fascinating reality then when we consider it. Because clearly this command to love has been given very early on and it's very vital to the people of God. Now, understand then this commandment is from the very beginning. And it's clear that is not new. In fact, John will later say in chapter 4 of this very book that God is love. That God is love, which again then only emphasizes this reality that if God is love and God has commanded love and we know God is eternal and he's always existed, this command and this reality of love has been ongoing since before time even began. But this concept of God being love, we will talk more later as we get into that chapter later on. So this means that love comes from God and he commands us to love. We also understand the commandment is old, yet John does state that it's new. So, that begs the question, how can this ancient commandment also be a new commandment? John, like we said, the author of this text, was with Jesus at the Last Supper. Jesus, at the Last Supper, ends up teaching to great lengths about love and various other topics. And specifically in, as it's recorded, chapter 13 of John's gospel, he writes this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will have excuse me, will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. 
So Jesus says it's new. When he says this in John's gospel. But. It's because it's new. Because of the incarnation of Christ. Now again consider what we then have here. Christ dwells among us. Christ came to us. God took on flesh to walk along us. And so he gives this clear picture of what it actually truly means to love. They have this perfect example of agape love right in their faces every day as they followed him. The perfect image of God has now walked among them. God was giving them a clear example and perfect, godly, righteous love was on display for all to see. Not only did they see it, but they experienced it. They knew it intimately. So every day for years, the apostles and other witnesses, right, other people that he interacted with, saw this love, this incarnation of love. They watched Jesus serve, right, he washed the feet of his apostles and served in other capacities. They heard him speak the truth, both in a uh, comforting way, right? When someone was needing comfort, he would come alongside and use the word and speak this loving comfort. But he also spoke the truth in love in a corrective way. When people were in rebellion or in sin, they needed to be corrected of said sin and so they saw him not only do that but they saw him embrace the infirmed they saw him interact with those that they never would have even dreamed of calling a neighbor one of my favorite pictures of this is when jesus speaks to the samaritan woman again if you're unfamiliar that would have been just a major disgrace to any Jew interacting with a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman. And yet here, Jesus is not only engaging, but having a real meaningful conversation. And yet, that's not even the height of Christ's love that we saw him walk in, in this earthly ministry. That height comes at the end when he gives us the ultimate sign of love. The ultimate reality of his love is when he laid down his life for those he loved, when he went to the cross and took our place on Calvary. So this command to love is new, not because, again, Jesus says it's new, not just because he just says, oh, yeah, I'm going to say it here. No, he says it's new because it's now been lived out perfectly. See, Christ has fulfilled this and he walked in it perfectly yet it's the same commandment how do we understand love then how did jesus do it perfectly again i just throw out some random examples but notice this interaction when questioned by religious leaders right they were trying to trap him with the law trying to try to get him in a trap he referenced and reminded them of this old commandment. And in Matthew, it's recorded this way. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, he says this, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, 
and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should, because I literally just referenced what Jesus quotes here. These are the passages from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He goes back to remind these religious leaders, these studiers of the law, this ancient commandment. But he does something unique as well. Notice Jesus says about these commandments. At the end of this passage, he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, these two commandments summarize all of scripture. Meaning everything we are commanded to do throughout scripture can be summarized by these two realities of loving God and loving neighbor. Everything falls within these two commandments. Therefore, as we look at a uh, definition, excuse me, of love, we can see that love is defined by God, right? God is love. God defines it. God can say that which is and that which is not love. So it's not up to an individual determination. I don't get to decide what is love. It's not left up to an individual to even have to try to figure out. He says what is love. Rather, it comes directly from God and his word. Yet there's more we can learn from this passage. There also shows that love requires doing what God has commanded. This is the case because we know that there are commandments throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible. And if all of Scripture hangs on these two, then that would therefore mean this logical conclusion, that if I want to love correctly, I need to obey what he says. And this idea doesn't even escape Jesus. He will say this shortly after he tells the uh, disciples in the upper room and his last Supper, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So this reality is very clear. In fact, the New Testament writers, Paul specifically, will take this idea and continue along with it. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and 10, we see this. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For there is The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So once again, we can see this connection Paul specifically is connecting using examples from the Ten Commandments, the second part of the Ten Commandments to be specific. And this means that love is obeying the commandments of God. It means love has a standard, and this standard is measured and is the law of God. Earlier, I 
I had mentioned that during Jesus' earthly ministry, he was displaying this love as he went out, as he did his earthly ministry, serving, healing, all these various things, right? And so during this time, he is an example, and he was also fulfilling the law. He was acting correctly and obeying the law at every moment. He is fulfilling the law. He did not break the law, nor did he even try to bend it. No, he was perfect in obedience to the law and fulfilled the law. Meaning this, that as we look then at this definition of what it means to love, love is of God, period. And love is doing what God has commanded. But I also want to make sure we understand this, that Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law of God. Because that's going to come back, but we'll get there in a little bit. So now with this sort of clear definition that love has its origin, this God love has its origin in God, it's connected to the commandments, and then we see it's fulfilled in Christ. How then do we apply it? Because what good would it be to have this definition and then do nothing with it? So, how then do we apply this love? How can we correctly love then? Well, if we go back to our main text, we'll start to unpack this. In verse 9 through 11, John writes this, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Whoever says he is in the light, yet hates his brother, is in the darkness. Many might claim, many might even argue that they are doing something out of love. That they are doing something with the very best intentions for someone because they care for them, because they love them, because they want what is best. And they want to do what is right. But if they do something that is opposed to the word of God, that is opposed to the law of God, then by definition, we know that that thing, whatever the case may be, is not loving. It's darkness. And our culture demonstrates this darkness constantly. They demonstrate the sin and error. They claim... They will claim it's unloving of me, a Christian, to call out sin. They will say, potentially, that I'm some sort of self-righteous prude uh, for claiming that sexual relations are intended for the marriage bed. And that, again, Scripture, God defines marriage as between a man and a woman. They will, again, say that that is not allowing love to take place. See, they claim that I'm wrong. But notice once again in verse 11, 
what he says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. They make these claims of what is love, of what we ought to do in love, but they are stumbling in darkness. They don't have a clear definition of love. They've moved beyond scripture. They may have the best intentions, but they have no idea what is actually truly love as defined by God. They think they know love. But, as we've clearly noted, that any love disconnected from the word of God, any love disconnected from the law of God, the truth of God's word, then they do not actually have true agape love. And ultimately, we also know that they have no fellowship with the light. And if you recall in previous messages, the light here, John uses as a metaphor for speaking about God himself. So they have no fellowship with God. So then this is my second point. To rightly apply love, the Christian must have fellowship with the light. Or as it says there, agape love, we must have fellowship with God. Fellowship with God is knowing and being in relationship with God. Brothers, sisters, again, this is why I emphasized uh, in my last sermon this idea of having fellowship with our advocate or fellowship with God, because if we don't have fellowship with God first and foremost, then we're, we're missing where this even begins, where even this idea is. We're going to create false realities. And this is also then must be why we must be committed to the word of God. Because if we know the light, if we know our Lord and Savior, and he commands us to love, then we need to know what he said about love. We need to then allow that love to define what we must do. So we have to be, we must be in the word. We must be reading the word. We must be hearing the word. We must be studying the word, meditating upon the word, memorizing the word of God. Because if we don't, then how are we ever going to know it? If we don't spend time in the word, then how could we possibly know it? And if we then don't know it, how then would we know how to rightly love? So that's the first major point of this application then, is we must abide in Christ. We must know him and then pour our attention in that relationship to know what he's actually commanded and said to us. Notice in verse 10 then what he says about this reality Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. If we are in fellowship with God, if we know his word and are studying his word and doing all these various other methods of understanding his word, then we're not going to be like those in the darkness who stumble around and think that they're doing something loving when they're not. And on the opposite side of that, we're actually going to then know what it means to love and how to love. I have, as I pointed out, because he, he left for his class, a, a six-year-old. 
son. And every night when I go to bed, I have to go check on him. Maybe it's a neurotic thing. Maybe I'm fearful. I don't know. Maybe. Um, but I just always go check on him, make sure he's tucked in, make sure everything's good. Um, propped up on his pillows, all that stuff. Um, because as you probably, those with kids know, sometimes kids get in weird sleeping positions. So I try to make sure he's all right, not going to fall off the bed, all that kind of stuff. But there's one thing I'm incredibly thankful when I go and do that, and that's his nightlight. See, he still uses a nightlight. And the reason I'm very thankful for this nightlight is because if there was no nightlight, it would be inevitable that I would most likely step on a Lego or some other toy, right? But, but again, there is this nightlight in there, so I'm able to see the maze of destruction of, of his day and avoid the toy or the Lego. Um, although, as my wife will test, sometimes I still step on the Legos because that's a, just a, I'm just, I don't always fully take advantage of the light, but maybe I'm getting to another application <laughs> later down the road, but I'll talk about that here in a minute. But I get this is a silly metaphor, and maybe not even worthy to really bring in here, but I use it because, again, we can get this reality, but, again, it just shows that when there is a presence of light, when you know the light and you know how to actually pay attention to the light, you prevent yourself from these errors and these stumbling blocks, or in the case of my metaphor, the Legos and other toys. And so just like the nightlight keeps me from those things, the word of God, God himself, when we know him and we're abiding in him and we, have this and we have this relationship, then that's going to begin us to walk correctly. So it's very vital that we understand that this all begins, proper love, agape love, begins with knowing God, abiding in God, and having faith and a relationship with our Savior. Consider with me, if you will, then the weight of all that's sort of been thrown out at us this morning. That it may sound like I may be suggesting this idea that there's this very thin strip of light of which I must maintain my path, that any sort of deviation left or to the right, the slightest little sin potentially might cause me to stumble into the darkness and into this chaotic realm of darkness. And perhaps that discounts me from then being a person who walks in the light. And you might be thinking this, might be hearing this and go, okay, this is a very tight thing, this law of God and very specific reality. How am I ever going to do this? I am going to fail at this. So if you're hearing that, if you're thinking that, if you're starting to get anxious about that, then let's turn our attention back to the text because I have something important for you to hear. In verses 12 through 14, John writes this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. 
I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John clearly identifies three groups within this passage. Children, fathers, and young men. Lots of debate on the nature of this, but let's just go ahead and look at each group first and we can talk about the the application here in a moment. So first we have the children. And what does it say of the children? It says that their sins have been forgiven for his namesake and that they know the Father. See what's going on here. What John is alluding to is that they are atoned for. Their sins have been taken care of. God's forgiven their sins. Remember just a few studies ago, we talked about the propitiation of Christ, the atonement of Christ, the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And we know that this is a work of grace. Not something I can bring to the table. Not something you can bring to the table. Nothing that you can do to this is going to make this reality. Rather, again, it's to the name of Christ. It's to his name. He gets the glory because he's the one who's done it. So I can't take glory. I can't save myself. You don't get glory. You can't save yourself. We can't even really give credit to whoever it was who first preached to us the gospel. Because again, we know that it all comes from God. Forgiveness of our sins is to the glory of Christ alone. He is the Savior. And this is why he had to die. See, because, like as I mentioned, we can't save ourselves. But because he fulfilled the law, because he walked perfectly, as I've already mentioned, and then because he goes on the cross and dies in our place, he dies for us and then gives us his righteousness in that place. This is, again, the essentials of our belief, the essentials of the Christian faith, that our sins have been forgiven by the work of Christ, by the blood of Christ. And then in his resurrection, we see his victory over all of these sin and death. And so we're starting to now formulate some very powerful ideas, but there's still two other groups. So let's look at the second group here, the fathers. The fathers, it says the same thing twice about them, and they know him from the beginning. They too know God, just like these children know God. So then this potentially asks the question, do they know God differently since they're in a different category here within the group? A short answer, no, of course not. That would be ridiculous. Imagine then that there would be multiple ways to God and multiple different ways to come to faith in Christ. That's clearly not what Scripture teaches. So they did not learn God differently from the children, no. But notice the phrase here. It says that they've known him from the beginning, which now seems to put in this idea, this concept, that Unlike the children who are potentially first coming to faith, these fathers have been around a while and God has preserved them from the beginning, however long that may have been. That we can see God through his grace again is holding on to them, preserving them to this moment where they've now reached. That even though there might be trials and hardships and all of this chaos going around them, God 
has held on to them tightly, preserved them, kept them safe, kept them secure in faith. And once again, brothers, sisters, this is grace. These fathers are not achieving some sort of act of sinlessness. They haven't arrived at this point where they don't need to go to Christ for forgiveness. They don't need an advocate because, well, A, we've looked at this letter, and this letter is very clear that we're going to continue in sin. My other sermons have mentioned this reality. But also, again, it sees that they know the Father, so again, they've been saved. They know him from the beginning. They've been held on to. So they have not done anything in their own merit or strength. And that would just radically contradict what John has already said in his letter, had they, again, reached some sort of sinlessness. But again, it's back to God securing them and holding them tight. So now third, we see the young men. And they have the longest list. They have overcome the evil one. They are strong and the word of God abides in them. So, let's ask the rhetorical question once again. Are these young men radically different from the children and the fathers? Have they achieved this reality again on some sort of other merit, on some other path, some other direction? No, of course not. Again, that would contradict what we've already seen in this letter. So, what then do we have? We have God abiding in them. Notice it says that God, excuse me, that the word of God abides in them, which again means that God abides in them and they in God. It's this relationship, this reality of what's going on. And God is the one empowering them in this strength. It's not their own strength, once again, that they've somehow mustered up or learned how to to capitalize on. No, it's the God-given strength that's given them this strength. And it's that strength that again comes from God that now gives them victory over the evil one. So once again, when we look at this group then, they too, just like the children, just like the fathers, can really only look to one source for truth and glory, and that comes in Christ, because he's the one who did all of this for them and through them. So this is our reality that now in these passages, we see something, excuse me, in this passage of Scripture, these last three verses here, start to shape the gospel. Because if we look not only at what we just looked about, this tight, narrow path of walking the light and loving brothers and or not, we also can look back at other things that Scripture has said that, again, if I proclaim to know him but yet walk in darkness, right, or if I do not obey him, these various commands then, or these various realities that we've already looked at in this letter are convicting. They should, and probably, cause for us to beat ourselves up. Wonder, okay, how then could I possibly measure up to this reality? How can I achieve these things? How am I ever going to do this? And these first two chapters of of 1 John do not shy away from this reality. These are convicting. These are 
hard realities to wrestle with. And again, speaking very personally, I know in myself, just being honest with you, that I have not perfectly loved the brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. And I'd be willing to bet that most of you can relate to that too. There's probably someone that just... They just don't have a personality that works with yours, that they just rub you the wrong way. There's for whatever reason, you guys can't get on the same page. There sort of always seems to be this hardship. But then also, too, what can happen is that a fellow believer can wrong you. A fellow believer can hurt you. A fellow believer can sin against you. And that as if you've ever experienced that, knows how painful that is. It hurts. I know I've experienced it where I've been wronged by a brother or a sister in the church. Yet we have to now consider what we see here in verses 12, 13, and 14. God has done a mighty work. God has done something miraculous. God has forgiven my sins. God has redeemed me. God has long suffered throughout my years of rebellion or even just my moments of sin. And there are times where I've straight out rejected him in my life. If God then forgives that, how then am I to not want to carry on that same forgiveness and want to then forgive those who have wronged me? We must forgive. Ephesians chapter 4 actually says this very clearly. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Again, we see then that this is the reality of what we have as a Christian, as a person in Christ. John is comforting his hearers with this gospel message that, again, it's the work of Christ, reminding them that they are not to trust in their own work, their own righteousness, their own best efforts. No, they're supposed to trust in the gospel, trust in the finished, completed work of Christ. And this is true today as well. Yes, we are called to a high standard of love, but we do not muster up love within ourselves. God, as we've already defined, is the origin of love. God is love. And the evidence of his love is in the forgiveness of sins and giving us victory over the evil one. See, God redeems us through his work. God extends grace and mercy. We don't do a thing. God does this because of his great love for us. And so we love because God loves us. And we forgive because God forgives us. This now is the motivation behind everything. And still you might be wondering, okay, okay, I get that my sins are forgiven. 
I get all of this, but how there's still those tough people. How can we go about doing this? But once again, I'm going to ask you to remember that it's not up to you to muster. It's not up to me to muster in my, within myself, but God works in us. God is sanctifying us. Again, that idea of being committed to knowing him, we're going to be sanctified by him. And specifically in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we see this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, now, we're, now we've got something. This reality of love then is, yes, God is love. And he, through the work of Christ, empowers us, those of us in Christ, empowers us to not only love our brothers and sisters, but also to love our neighbors. Because we are being made to be like Christ as we abide in him. So this is an ongoing process. This is something that is continuing on in our daily walk. This is something that we live out day by day. And so, yes, there's potentially going to be imperfections in this. The people sitting in this room might wrong you. I might wrong you. I don't know. I'm just as capable of sin as anyone else. Right? And luckily, as we've looked through this first beginning of, of John's epistle, we've seen that when we sin, we have an advocate. We can go to him in forgiveness. We also know then the gospel, and as it's fully laid out, that Christ's blood, Christ's work redeems us. We have a hope. We have a plan. We have redemption in Christ. And that is this reality then of how we then live out agape love. Not something that I try to do or I can even do fully on my own strength and merit, but something that God is doing within me, transforming me, conforming me into the image of his son. So that as I go along day by day, I now can start to begin to love better and better each day as well. Remember then our definition. God is love. God's love is connected to his commandments. Christ perfectly modeled this agape love during his earthly ministry as he fulfilled the law. And remember then the application. We love not because we have the power in and of ourselves, but we love because God is working in us. He's working through us. And as we stay connected, as we stay rooted in God and rooted in his word, as we abide in him, he then gives us the ability to love. Because we can't do it on our own. He had to redeem us. He has to save us. And so to him is the glory and honor. And this is the love of God, that he would do this for us. So I pray that as we go about this place today and back into our lives, we will understand this, that we must first know God and then 
allow him to work in us and through us so that he, excuse me, so that his love can be visible and experienced as we love those around us. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you for this ultimate reality that your love is seen perfectly in Christ, that his love fulfilled the law, that his action fulfilled the law, and that it's his work that redeems us and forgives us. Lord, I pray that you will continue this work, that as the Holy Spirit has been poured in us, that the love of God will overflow and that we, Lord, will walk in this love, that we will respond in love because of your great love that you've shown us. So, Lord, help us to forgive those that have wronged us. Forgive us of those that we have wronged. And, Lord, may we just continue to be sanctified by your work because we know that you are working in our hearts constantly. So, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.